Welcome to Interchange. I'm your host, Zach Anderson Pettit. Interchange was founded inside of Bond, the embedded finance company. This podcast is a place for conversation, questioning, and open learning about the future of embedded finance. Our guest this week is Kurt Lynn, CEO at Pinwheel. Pinwheel is a payroll connectivity API company used by financial institutions to securely update direct deposits and access income and employment data. We get into what all that means, why it matters, and what pinwheel could mean to the future of financial services. One quick note, we did have some minor technical issues while we were recording, so my audio isn't great for the first few minutes, but we thought the content was so good that we wanted to get it out there, so please excuse the blips. And now, the great and powerful Kurt Lynn. Let's take a little journey through through Kurt's history in the younger days. So paint, paint a little bit of a history of kind of your life growing up, kind of what got you into financial services, and maybe if you had any, you know, entrepreneurial moments along those along those lines in those days. Yeah, totally. Uh, so I think I, I feel like I had a pretty uh, ordinary childhood in some regards. Uh, I grew up in a very... Uh, traditional Asian household. My parents are, are immigrants. So um, one of the norms in the house was this, like what I would call uh, hyper frugality where never bought anything that wasn't on sale. Mm-hmm. Uh, we kept every like grocery bag, every like takeout container. Like, <laughs> I remember there was actually, uh, there was this like set of cabinets in the kitchen that had like all of these like leftover like things that were just like washed and then stored. And then we would use them for basically like, like using them, using like old takeout containers as like, uh, garden boxes for planting in the garden and whatnot. And it was frankly, actually incredibly, uh, resourceful, but that was kind of the, the existing ethos with which I grew up with. And I know I'm talking with a lot of my friends growing up who also came from, you know, uh, parents who were first generation immigrants, it was very much a, a kind of a common trait. Um, and, uh, I think relatedly, uh, I was not given very much pocket money. <laughs> not that I ever suffered from anything, but I was really given a lot of, you know, liquidity to go spend as a kid. And so kind of had to get scrappy. Um, and one of the things, one of the earliest memories, uh, of kind of, for lack of a better term, uh, hustling is, um, I, I quickly learned that, I mean, the, the currency as a kid was Pokemon cards, right? And especially like <laughs> getting the holographic ones, getting ones that were really uh, valuable or rare and uh, could not convince my parents to go buy the, the packs. And so I was like, all right, well, I got to get these things somehow. Uh, and so I would find uh, kids in my class who wanted my like lunch or the snacks that I had. And I would <laughs> basically all my snacks away for Pokemon cards and I kind of like get a base and then like trade up from there. But, uh, you know, trying to find that leverage point in the, in the market that would really, you know, help me get what I wanted. So, uh, I consider that one of the first, you know, formative experiences of me, uh, you know, understanding how the, how free market economies work. And then, uh, further to that point, uh, I remember distinctly this moment in, uh, high school, I was on the football team and a lot of, uh, uh, of the guys were looking for like workout supplements, but you know, they weren't able to get them or the parents wouldn't buy it for them. And so 
I actually convinced my dad to go to like Costco and vitamin shop and buy all these supplements and then put them in baggies and basically sell them uh, on a unit basis. So, <laughs> uh, you know, whatever, whatever it took to, uh, to, you know, get, uh, get some pocket money and, you know, be able to buy what I wanted to buy. Uh, I think I, I found a way. So, um, I think those are kind of some of the early formative uh, moments I had with money, and especially I think where I where I realized that I had this entrepreneurial uh, gene in my body, uh, for lack of a of a better term. Yeah, from lunchroom bartering to high school, <laughs> you know, protein sales under the counter. Good thing none of that is actually FDA approved, or else you might have. You know. <laughs> We might have to edit a piece of this out, but you, you were flying, flying above the radar, like the, the good business person that you were. So we're good. Of course. Of course. This is a, uh, you know, I think I'm past the statute of limitations. So that is an interesting tangent actually into the world of financial services and fintech. So what was it like, was it, what was it other than those kind of experiences that you just noted that kind of drew you in the direction of finance? It seems like, you know, it was kind of a circuitous route to get you actually to pinwheel, but what was it about finance itself that kind of intrigued you? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think one of the things that has always, frankly, really bothered me uh, since I kind of saw this very early on in my life were, um, as I mentioned, both of my parents were uh, first generation immigrants. And uh, I distinctly remember this. I had gone with my dad to uh, the bank because he was looking to uh, get uh, a mortgage. And because uh, he was an immigrant, he didn't really have an existing credit history. And so, uh, I mean, at the time, I wasn't really... I didn't really understand what was going on, but I could tell, uh, I, I learned after the fact that, you know, he had, this is a, a guy as mentioned, who is incredibly fiscally disciplined, never, you know, not paid a debt on time in his life. And frankly, the idea of debt in many ways is actually very antithetical, um, to the way that my, you know, my parents, uh, live their lives. And so when he actually went to go apply for a mortgage and didn't have the, you know, the credit score that he needed, uh, he was given, you know, uh, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was uh, certainly a pretty predatory or at least a pretty, you know, uh, high interest rate to actually, you know, simply be able to buy a home. And I remember what I do remember from that experience uh, was not necessarily the context, but the way that he reacted and felt um, about that. And that moment, that memory really stuck with me because um, it was one of those rare times in my life where, you know, you see, uh, something that really hurts, uh, you know, your, your parents or people that you look up to. Um, and that moment always kind of, um, stayed with me. And then as I started to grow older and learn more about the, uh, financial system, I realized that, you know, this is one of many examples where, uh, the system, it just doesn't work for a lot of people, right. Um, whether it's folks who are, uh, you know, uh, immigrants or people who just simply come from backgrounds where they, you know, don't understand how the system works, uh, and, or haven't had the opportunity to actually, you know, uh, put themselves on a path where they could, uh, actually have the system work for them. And so as we got, like, I, I've never, uh, you know, I, I certainly wish I could have spent more time, uh, from an academic perspective, learning more about the space, but, um, we, we ended up, uh, in this because, uh, we had a thesis that was tied to this same, uh, larger idea and ethos. Uh, I don't know if you want me to go into that now, or if you want to talk about it later. Yeah, no, definitely. Definitely. I mean, I think it's fascinating just how, how long you've been thinking about it and like how different pieces of that puzzle have come together. Like, you know, it's like, if it's a line, there's a lot of dots along that line. It's right. not like you just had some aha moment. So I'd love, I'd love to hear the, 
how those dots turned into a, a story and a real thing kind of. Yeah, totally. There's a couple of other common themes that I noticed. Uh, one was, you know, even amongst really educated, you know, I, I'm very lucky to have, uh, you know, gone to uh, schools, both, you know, in my, uh, like, my elementary and high school, as well as into college, like gone to, you know, really great schools and met a lot of really highly educated, really ambitious people. And one of the really paradoxical things that I noticed is even amongst extremely you know, what would otherwise be highly capable people when it came to personal finance, uh, some of them strangely just like, just could not grok a lot of these, you know, basic concepts around compounding interest or, you know, building, uh, how important building credit early is. In fact, one of my best friends growing up, uh, who actually went to Princeton and is like a very accomplished, I'm not going <laughs> to name his name, but works, works in the private equity, uh, world. Uh, didn't start using a credit card until a few years ago. And uh, it just blew my mind. Wow. Right. Yeah. It blew my mind because I was just, you know, I, I just assumed it was understood that, you know, you got to get started early on this because the effects compound. Um, and so uh, that's one of the other uh, themes that, you know, I kind of added to this larger, I would say, uh, database of, of data points around like, hey, like there's a lot of stuff that can be done here and should be done. Um, and then also for, for myself too, I think uh, one of the things that my uh, mom did a lot of, uh, especially in her, in, or rather in my younger years, uh, was kind of show me uh, how to do like really basic uh, day trading of stocks and very explicit caveat. <laughs> I'm not good at it. I don't think, I don't think, I think it's a really, really hard thing to do well. And by no means am I advocating that this is something that you should spend your time on unless you really want to. Um, and think you, you know, uh, would yeah. enjoy. Uh, but gam gambling is fun though, right? <laughs> <laughs> if you, if you, if you are an optimistic person and you know, there's, there's certain core principles that if you follow on a long enough timeline, you should generally do okay. Um, but just yeah. like learning, yeah. right. Like, uh, um, just learning the basic essentials and, and principles of like, you know, how to manage risk and just uh, accrue wealth over time. Um, I'm very lucky that my, my mom as a banker was able to teach me that, but uh, it was astounding to me that my peers who had parents who, you know, were not uh, of, like, did not have that type of understanding or background, uh, yeah. their, their approach to even simple things like managing a budget and stuff were just completely uh, not there. And they, these things were never taught in school or anything. And that's still to this day, we don't have curriculum that teaches you how to be like a, an adult. Right. And you're no. just like, Whoa. <laughs> no, we just why, have, why is that? Uh, yeah. We have TikTok telling kids to buy doge. That is the extent <laughs> yeah. of what we have right now. I, I will say, I do think it's getting a lot better. And obviously the, the promise of FinTech uh, in many ways is to, um, reduce the barrier to that and, you know, make it so that you don't actually have to know everything. Uh, but, um, I, I think the, the curriculum piece and the education piece is still something that I, uh, blows my mind to this day. It is mind boggling for sure. Yeah. But fast forwarding a little bit, tell me the story about Lux. Cause I think that was one of your first kind of real entrepreneurial endeavors that, that led you down this road that got you eventually to pinwheel. Yeah, definitely. So uh, one of my co-founders with Pinwheel actually is uh, Curtis uh, Lee, uh, and he was the founder and CEO of uh, Lux. And so uh, I joined him and the Lux squad in early 2015. I guess I should start by saying what Lux is. Uh, Lux was, in short, 
uh, a on-demand uh, ballet parking app. So the problem that we were trying to solve is whenever you're in a, uh, oftentimes like an urban city and you're driving around, whether you're trying to go to like a restaurant or like a sports game or whatever, uh, and you can't find parking that I think that experience of just like circling the block or circling the lot, trying to find a spot is pretty universal. Uh, and we realized that you could actually really solve that pain point, uh, by bridging the gap where there is no supply, aka right next to the really, you know, high traffic areas. Um, and the areas maybe a few blocks down or maybe even farther than that, the lots outside that were sitting there empty all day long. And the way you would do that is by, you know, having a, uh, valet, um, or an agent come by, pick up, uh, the car for you and park it. And then whenever you wanted your car back, bring it back to you at that point. Uh, and so, uh, it was an incredible journey. It's some of the best people I've ever worked with were on that team. Um, and we, I, I think we did create magic. I think one of the really, uh, powerful things that I look back on about that experience is, um, that everyone who was there when you talk, when they talk about their time there, look back at it fondly. And I don't think you can say that about every startup experience that you've had. I think it was, yeah. (laughs) And, uh, I think it was, you know, there's a, there's a, for better or for worse, collective trauma being in the trenches for so long together. But, um, it taught me, I think a number of things, number one, which I kind of already mentioned is just, how utterly important it is to, to have the right people on board and to have, you know, just really, really good people. Um, and I don't think it's so much necessarily that these people are really smart and work hard, et cetera. But I think there's a certain nuance to, I think this expression that you hear all the time, it's like, it's the missionaries, not the mercenaries that you, that you want, which I totally agree with. But the, what makes a missionary is someone who not only believes in the larger mission, but also someone who, uh, fits well with all the other pieces that you have in place. Right. Um, and so I think that's, that's one of the first and most important lessons that I learned from that experience. Mm-hmm. And then two, <laughs> very pragmatically is there are just some businesses that are a lot better to do than others, uh, <laughs> on demand, <laughs> on, on demand logistics with a lot of human, uh, you know, people in the equation, uh, really hard to make the margins work. And, uh, it's intensely, intensely laborious because you're on all the time and, uh, you know, trying to get a bunch of people organized and doing the same thing to a really high standard at every waking hour of the day, uh, is tough, uh, a lot tougher than, you know, making, uh, sure that software is running efficiently, uh, at scale for a customer and not having, you know, any human component to it. So, uh, one of the things that, uh, Curtis and I basically joke about, but effectively like promised ourselves after that experience was that if we were to do everything, anything again together, which we obviously ended up doing, we, we were probably not going to build a business that, you know, had that large of an, uh, of a, element that was in many ways uncontrollable or at the very least like really hard to actually like refine and optimize. Whenever you tell me this story, I always think of like that Seinfeld episode where George is charged with moving the cars from one side of the street to the other. <laughs> and I'm like, I just imagine trying to trying to employ a Kramer or a George to get to the right place at the right time, move a car without, you know, running into something or like, you know, I don't know, Elaine's dead in the back seat or something like that. Like it just seemed like a really hard business to run. But yeah, it was a positive outcome, right? You guys ended up getting acquired. Tell me that story. Right. So we, um, 
we ended up being purchased by Volvo, the uh, the auto manufacturer, in fall of seventeen, uh, and it, it was, I think, a a great outcome for the team, and also. Um, I personally am I'm really thankful for that experience specifically because it also gave us rather gave me I think exposure for the first time to a, a larger company and how being part of a larger company can really accelerate uh, your vision and the and the growth you have or rather the vision and the mission you have for the company right and so um, what has been great to see is that uh, the Lux team is uh, actually growing underneath the, the Volvo umbrella and um, the technology and the platform that we built is now powering a lot of the uh, mobility services that Volvo offers not just in the US but actually globally um, wow. everywhere from yeah Sweden to China um, to the states and beyond so um, and that was a really uh, cool experience I will say it was also a very um, jarring transition from the, you know, like, hey, we're clawing to survive and fighting day after day and like every little bit counts attitude to the, you know, <laughs> this thing is kind of too big to fail. So, yeah. you know, we can, we can take a breath and, you know, move at a slower pace and uh, nothing's going to really break, um, which I think, frankly, was a welcome reprieve because uh, you can only go at light speed for so long before you you really start to, uh, the, the wheels have to come up a little bit. That was a good pun. Number one, number two, <laughs> uh, <Thanks for catching laughs> it. yeah, 100%. Uh, number two, I mean, yeah, it does, it does make sense. It's, it's wild that it continues to grow inside of that. That has to make you proud. But I think there was something that you kind of got into while you were at Volvo that really kind of pushed you into the FinTech space. If I remember correctly from our conversation a while back, it was, it was actually your HSA account and feeling like kind of people were not taking advantage of that in the way that they should. Am I, am yeah. I right? Am I taking this in yeah. the wrong direction? No, 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 you're totally right. Uh, that, that is actually the genesis of, uh, of Pinwheel. So I guess if you are a uh, masterful storyteller, you can kind of tie this all into one large saga, but uh, why, well, Chris and I were at Volvo. One of the things that we realized or had received for the first time um, in either of our careers was a, a HSA, a health savings account. And what we um, what we realized were a couple of things. One, these are generally kind of hard to use and kind of hard to understand. There's like tax implications. You got to put money aside, and a lot of people that I, that we knew in our own uh, peer networks had felt similarly. And then the other thing we realized, uh, I would say, even more importantly, is uh, for the, the, the utilization model of these accounts means that you have to set aside money first from your paycheck. And only when you set aside money can you then actually go and get take advantage of what is effectively like a federal discount on medical expenses or transit expenses, right? Uh, which was crazy because for arguably the majority of Americans, uh, they live in some capacity paycheck to paycheck or with at the very least very little cash flow. And so to expect someone to be able to uh, have enough spare liquidity to actually go and pre-fund these accounts and then take advantage of them precludes a substantial number of people who just don't have that freedom. And which is crazy because they're probably the ones who need that benefit the most. And so we had this thought of, can you actually invert that utilization model and say, you know, have someone connect their accounts with the banking aggregator recognize that they're making a, med a medically qualified or transit qualified expense, and then retroactively go in the payroll system and still make sure that they are uh, actually getting their uh, tax savings added directly to their paycheck. And so we call it like an automated HSA. And we uh, actually built that product and launched it uh, in 2019. And, and as a part of that, 
experience, we actually saw that we were, it was the first time I had actually made a step towards fulfilling that thing that as mentioned, always kind of bothered me throughout my life and actually felt like I was actually making a difference. And in the process of building that realized that we had a huge issue on our hands, which is in order for this product to work, we need to connect the payroll systems. Lo and behold, there's no, there's no API, there's no infrastructure that allows you to connect to payroll systems uh, at uh, writ large. And so we were basically kind of building it one by one ourselves. And at a certain point, basically all of our engineering resources were spent on just building these integrations. And so we started talking to other uh, fintech companies and quickly came to the realization that there weren't just, you know, maybe a few others or even tens of others or hundreds of others. There were what looked like to be thousands of other people out there who wanted to uh, build something innovative that required access to these payroll systems or at the very least the payroll data within. And that's when we had this aha moment where we realized that who we were now, like that was actually the customer that we could be serving if we moved away from that automated HSA idea into the infrastructure layer instead. And so that was the genesis of what Pinwheel is today. Um, and we, uh, in many ways, uh, I think some of the best um, products and the best uh, business ideas are the ones where you, you suffer the pain yourself and then realize that there's a lot more like you out there. Talk me through kind of the ideal use case, right? I think for a lot of folks, this this idea of payroll APIs, the idea of deposit switching, the idea of kind of, you know, that connectivity is a little ethereal. So walk me through kind of like one of your favorite, you know, obvious use cases that I could explain to my mom and she would at least somewhat understand. Let me start broadly by just explaining, I think, what's really important, which is the actual context and... and uh the market and frankly, what a payroll system even is, which I've surprisingly realized people don't even know. Uh, mm. And so, uh, the pay so way back in the day, the when people first started getting paid, the government was like, we need to start collecting tax on these on people's paychecks. And uh, there are different taxes at the state level and the city level and the federal level. And uh, the banks were basically like, we don't want to be the ones dealing with all these different tax implications, which is how payroll providers uh, even came to exist in the first place, right? They were the layer in between that would handle all that and make sure that people got paid the right amount at the right time. And at the same time, all the taxes were being paid properly that the employees didn't have to worry about. Um, the reason why I bring that up is because when you look outside the US, uh, payroll systems are not a, a, a ubiquitous thing. Uh, and, you know, I would say most of Asia and certainly parts of uh, the UK, or sorry, UK, uh, the EU, uh, as well as certain parts of LATAM, uh, banks just pay people directly uh, as far as their, their salaries go. And so it's in many ways a, uh, a product born out of regulation, which, you know, for better or for worse, that's, that's how it happened. Mm -hmm. And uh, going that a little bit further, uh, these payroll systems, as you might imagine, have an incredible wealth of data within them, right? It's everything from who you are to how much you make to where you work to, you know, every things like, were you recently promoted or what kind of benefits are you enrolled in? What kind of taxes do you pay? Mm -hmm. Are you contributing to some pre-tax accounts? There's an incredible wealth of data that has never really been unlocked before. And uh, by unlocking that data and making it really easy for people to access it and then build on top of, we can empower uh, the innovative banks, lenders, and fintechs out there 
uh, to build that next generation of what we believe uh, are going to be game-changing products. And so now to transition to your question about uh, use cases, I would say there's a couple that are uh, what we're really excited about. Um, I think the first one uh, is uh, around the direct deposit piece. So taking a quick step back and w- walking through the kind of logic of it. Um, when you map out a consumer's flow of funds, almost every dollar in your wallet can be traced back to your paycheck, right? And so when you look at the financial stack, the payroll system is the most top of stack that you can be even above your own bank account. It's what actually drives mm-hmm. the funds to your bank account. So if you can control uh, the, the pipes, that stem from that payroll system, you can really start to build some really interesting and uh, really groundbreaking uh, products. Uh, The first order solution that you can build is just being able to switch direct deposits much more easily. Something that as I'm sure many of your listeners know is really critical for all the, uh, all the banks out there, especially the Neo banks who uh, very much require, not require, but, uh, if they have those direct deposits, that customer is a high LTV, high engagement, really sticky customer, right? Yeah, they're screwed um, if they know. <laughs> For lack of a better term, yes. Uh, yeah. I, I wouldn't disagree with that. Uh, I think of it more positively as it really helps them benefit and build their business for the long term, but um, it, yeah. it'd be I, I, mean, I, I agree. <laughs> I just have like, I have like 25 apps on my phone that I have yet to ever connect a single de- direct deposit to, and I know I will right. never use them again. So now I'm just like this dead person in their database. So yeah, I mean, for all intents and purposes, they're useless if you don't have that specific thing. Right. And the interesting thing that we realized is uh, it may not seem like it, but it's actually a really high friction, really hard process to switch your direct deposit, right? Because you either have to submit a paper form to your HR team and hope that they process it, or you're going online and trying to do this yourself, uh, which is uh, a, a really... Uh, it's really easy to make an error or B it's just really hard to do generally. And yeah. so we take all of that friction and condense it down to a few clicks and then help uh, our customers uh, build it into their onboarding flows or into the, whatever the point of highest intent is in their, uh, in their apps and in their user experiences to make it really easy for their customers to switch direct deposits. So I think that's one use case uh, that we have seen a lot of uh, tremendous uh, growth and traction on. And then, um, Another one is on the uh, data side, especially around uh, income and employment data. There's this really obvious big market that is uh, around the verification of income and employment, especially for lenders. Uh, The interesting thing is, I mean, if you just think about it for two seconds, whenever you apply for anything, whether it's a credit product or something in the financial space, you have to verify at the very least who you are, how much you make and where you work. Right. And it's, consistently astounded me uh, even now after decades and decades uh, of you know digitizing a lot of this consumer financial data um, that we still don't have uh, a really robust set of information for many Americans right there are certain profiles of folks who uh, work really consistent jobs that use traditional uh, you know payroll systems that the bureaus like Equifax have been able to build, you know, decent data sets on. But uh, I think there's still a a major gap there. And then especially with the changing nature of work where there's more gig workers, there's more freelance workers, uh, all of a sudden those traditional, first of all, uh, the way that you think about income and employment is is changing differently, right? The, The unit of work is no longer an hourly, an hour, a shift, 
uh, or some sort of like, you know, uh, biweekly or monthly pay cycle. All of a sudden now it's, it's something, it's a, it's a different unit of work as measured by a, uh, delivery that you've done, uh, for a, a DoorDash or a, a ride that you've driven for Uber. And how do you take that, uh, input and still be able to translate it into a format and a structure that is actually digestible and usable by everyone else in the financial world who, by the way, have again, spent decades building these risk models, uh, that their entire business is predicated on. And all of a sudden, like you're trying to put a, a square block into a circle hole, right? Like this is, <laughs> this, this isn't yeah. working. How do we, how do we rethink this? Yeah. So, I mean, is that a slippery slope into the kind of dream that we've all talked about of like the IFTTT of money, the self-driving money thing? Is that kind of dream weaving? Is that kind of what the future holds potentially if you're able to kind of execute on things in front of you? Yeah, I I certainly think that's uh, a piece of it. I do think uh, there is both the movement of money as well as just the uh, free flow of data that is also Mm -hmm. equally important. Uh, I think, you know, as we, as we think about what else can be built with that data, um, there are everything from an actually, uh, sound earn wage access solution, because we have the data for, you know, shifts in time and attendance. We can actually build that in a way that is, um, beneficial both for the, our customers, the, you know, the fintechs as well as the consumers. Uh, and then around the money movement piece, being able to actually say, yeah, uh, can I dynamically send X percent of your paycheck to this brokerage account, Y percent to your savings account, Z percent to, you know, pay off these debts and in a way that is optimal for you at any given time. I I think it certainly takes us one step closer to that, you know, dream state that we've all been dreaming of. I I know I've I've heard the term self-driving money (laughs) for, for a long time now and and doesn't seem entirely like, we've made that much progress, but I, it, it does feel like we're starting to gain momentum here, which is great. I love the future of it. I get really excited with everything you're talking about. Um, maybe a good spot to close just kind of with all the excitement that you got out there is how folks can get a hold of you. Uh, if they're wanting to work with pinwheel, if they're wanting to, you know, get to know you on a more personal level, what's the, what's the best way to get in touch. If you're hiring, what's the best place to find that? Yeah, uh, definitely. So the easiest way to get a hold of me is uh, via email. Uh, anyone, I welcome any and everyone to reach out. Uh, it's Kurt at pinwheelapi.com. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Interchange with Kurt Lynn. To find more about Kurt and Pinwheel, take a look at the show notes where we've included pertinent links. Interchange was founded inside a bond to benefit the developers, product owners, and executives at brands working inside the next generation of financial services. We hope that you're learning, enjoying, and maybe even laughing along. We love this world and we're passionate about every piece of it. Let us know what you'd like to learn more about, who you'd like to hear from, and what's getting you out of bed in the morning in this wild world of fintech in which we live. If you'd like to learn more about Bond, please reach out. You can get a hold of me at Zach at Bond.tech. Let's start a conversation. Check out the show notes and the Bond blog for a deeper dive if you're still listening and just can't get enough. And lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and a rating in your favorite podcast app. Until our next interchange.